0: That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash judging Megan to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince dot com slash judging Megan. And now back to the podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to my podcast. This morning, we're in the week of Christmas, and it's sunny in California, and I'm excited to have a really amazing guest on today. I do want to tell you a story before I introduce her. To me, I don't know if it's like more embarrassing or more just like, I'm a big, giant nerd. So I met my guest when I was addicted to SoulCycle and when i tell you i was addicted to soul cycle i'm not lying like i was the woman that thought that she was like in her 20s but meanwhile i'm in my 40s now and i would go to soul cycle and i would be like hey guys to the front desk i'd have my entire like soul cycle getup i had the t-shirt i never wore like the soul cycle pants and t-shirt at the same time but i did have the whole getup and i'd be like Hey Maddie, what's up? And I'd walk in, they were all like in their twenties behind the desk. I thought they were my best friends. Then I go in, I go to the locker. I'd like squeeze through the like locker room and the bathroom and the bathroom was two inches big. So like people's butts were in your faces. It was so weird. Like build a bigger bathroom soul cycle, FYI. And then I would always ride in the front row like I legitimately thought that I had hopes of being an old lady chubby SoulCycle instructor. So I'm going to start my podcast off telling you that story. I am now a convert to Peloton. I no longer go to SoulCycle anymore because I'm now addicted to Peloton but just wanted to tell you that yes I am that like nerdy mom that thought I was super cool Going to Soul Cycle and sitting in the front row and thinking I had hopes of being a teacher. So I wanted to introduce you to my guest this morning. Her name is Ariana Kukor Smith, and If you don't know, I'm really lucky to have her on the podcast. She's an Olympian. Hi, Ariana.
1: Hi, Megan.
0: (laughs) When I met you, we both did Soul Cycle all the time. And were you addicted like I was? I always saw you there. Oh,
1: I was addicted. And I was the one who was also in the front row in like multiple sweatshirts because I needed to get a really good sweat on in addition to like needing to do it as much as possible. I think it was just like... I mean, I love the good sweat, the good vibes, everything else. But no, I remember. I mean, we would go there all the time.
0: And, and the funny thing is, like, you say you needed a good sweat. Like, I was, like, in a tank top. I'm just, like, one of those people, like, I think I'm related to, like, cavemen. I can sweat, like, just walking down the street. So if I were to wor- wear, like, a sweatshirt in Soul Cycle, I would have, like, legitimately died. <laughs> um But what I I remember is I always like remember seeing you because you were in the front row with me. I would always ride like bike number five and you would ride like number like three or four and we would always sit next to each other. Yep. And you had really good moves. So I always wanted to keep up with you. Thank you. I'm a perfectionist.
1: And so if I'm gonna do something, I need yeah. to be like on point with the instructors. And I mean, it was it was an addiction. Like I loved it. I loved like the loud music. And it also just helped me get out of my head, which I was grateful for.
0: Yeah. And the best part about it was, you know, meeting you. I met some really cool people doing Soul Cycle. And I remember one day, I just I don't even remember. Like we would always talk when we were on the bikes and say hi to each other, but one day. I remember going into that teeny tiny bathroom where everybody would be like yep. butt naked and I'm like that person that like takes a shower and brings <laughs> like the towel. I'm not a nudist at all like in a public place. So I would like bring the towel into the shower with me and you know the bathroom is so small but I remember talking to you and at that point like I knew you looked familiar because I always watched, you know, the Olympics and watched swimming but I'm clueless about that kind of stuff so we started talking and I think I just remember, how did we start talking? We've, we started talking about church or?
1: Yeah, we went church first and see, and I actually like when people have no idea that I'm an Olympian. It's not something I lead with, you know? And so I don't know what like our point of intro was, but I think we started talking about church and then I think it just kind of came up organically.
0: Yeah. And I remember then we just like kind of hit it off and liked each other. And then I had told you, you were like, oh, I'm a swimmer. I swam in the Olympics. And I was like, oh my God, that's the coolest thing I've ever heard. (laughs) And I was telling you as a kid growing up in Potomac, Maryland in the DC area, I was by no means a swimmer. I was like the worst swimmer on the swim team. But I did swim team for a really long time until my mom realized like no hopes of going to the Olympics (laughs) for me. Um, but I used to swim for the curl organization, which we can kind of go into. But that's kind of how we connected. Yeah, and you opened up to me, and we have kind of become friendly. And we're both religious and spiritual, and. In the past year, before COVID, we both did this spiritual retreat together, which was amazing. Yeah. And I'm just really thankful that you decided to open up for my audience and my listeners and tell your story. So thank you.
1: Thank you. I'm I'm excited. It's been an interesting few years in life, so can't wait to dive in.
0: Okay, so why don't I start here? Do you mind telling me about like where you grew up and like how you got into swimming and kind of the backstory of what it was like being, you know, going to the Olympics and just tell me, because I think a lot of people are like, that is the coolest thing I've ever heard.
1: Yeah. So I grew up uh, just outside Seattle, Washington in a smaller town. I have uh, two sisters, so three girls in our family. I'm the middle child. So people can assume what they want from middle children. I'm kind of like, exactly like they say in the books. Um, You know, you're kind of ignored, was always hungry for attention and everything else. But my parents were athletic. Uh, My dad is 6'5". My mom's a great athlete. And uh, we had a family boat and they just wanted us to be water safe. And so we got into swim lessons from a really young age. Um, My older sister is four years older than me. And she really took to swimming. And I was that really obnoxious younger sister. I had to do everything that she did. And so she started swim team and I started swim team. And my parents had no hopes in the sense of like, I I remember telling my mom I wanted to be an Olympian and she was like, oh, that's nice, sweetie. Like she was not the kind who was like pushing us to do anything. She was kind of like, maybe you should lower your goals a little bit. But, um, you know, we just, our careers were very organic and, um, you know, I'm grateful that I have an older sister who really paved the way for me. So like every level that she got to, I, you know, aspired to get to that level as well. And my sisters and I, um, we actually, in 2008, all three of us competed at the U.S. Olympic Trials, uh, which was really special. Yeah, it was so cool for us to be able to do together. Um, But I mean, they were my rocks. We won together, we lost together. We, you know, were each other's confidants. And um, I feel really fortunate that we were able to go on this journey together. Obviously, um my swimming career had a huge dark side to it which i'm sure yeah. we're going to get into but um you know I, I have a lot of wonderful memories on the pool deck with my sisters even in the lowest darkest of times um before i made the olympic team in 2012 my younger sister um came out to train with me for about 5 weeks before because i was just in a dark place um In 2008, I had missed making the Olympic team by eight one hundredths of a second. I was third place and um, we only take two people. And so after that, you know, it was, the next four years were some of the best in my career. In 2009, I set the world record and was world champion and learned so much from the failure of 2008 that fueled me. But I really struggled in 2012. And while I was, you know, had so much pressure on myself to make the Olympic team, Um, my little sister was training with me and she was there and making the Olympic team is a, is a feeling I'll never forget. I still, when I look at pictures and think back on the emotions of that, because you train your whole life for something that is decided in fractions. And so for the U S team, we have to go to this meet called the Olympic trials. And it doesn't matter anything you've done in the past on that day. You have to place first or second. And after narrowly missing it in 2008, I felt the pressure enormously. I was the reigning world, um, world record holder. And for what, for what stroke, the 200 individual medley. So one lap of every stroke. Um, and yeah, I mean, the pressure was really intense and I wanted to make the Olympic team. It was something I trained my whole life for. And to touch the wall and see a number two next to my name will just be a feeling I'll never forget. I mean, it's so many emotions. It's excitement, but relief. And it's, you know, this, like, there's so many people, my mom always says it takes a village and it does. I mean, I was, especially towards the end there, I had people that were just dragging me towards the finish line and Um, You know, being able to compete for Team USA was an experience I'll never forget. Having, you know, my last name with the American flag on my swim cap. um, It's something I'm really proud of and something I worked my butt off for. And I'm grateful that I can look back on that and still have a smile on my face. (laughs)
0: Well, you should be really proud of yourself. I mean, that's like, what is the amount of people on the planet that can say that they were an Olympian and a medalist? And what was it like standing on that stand? I mean, there's no greater
1: feeling than,
0: you know, I, in 2009
1: was when I won world championships. And so I got to stand on the podium while they raised the American flag and the American or the national anthem played in the background. And that was one of just the proudest moments that I've ever achieved in my career or, you know, just like, I don't know. It's, it's so surreal. And it's one of those things where you're in the moment you're like, don't forget this. Like look around, like thank the people who helped you get here. And it's, um, I'm grateful that I have really, um, strong memories of that and those feelings, um, because they were moments in time, but I, I think that like you know, these big moments are defined by all the little moments that lead up to it. And I think that I was very aware of the journey. Um, My mom always told us when we were young, she was like, you're not a swimmer, you're a person who swims. And so we were really active in our church and our youth group. Um, School was really important. Um, I played piano growing up. And so we, she wanted us to be as well-rounded as possible. But, you know, anytime you're pursuing something where you want to be the best, like it's an intense journey. You know, there's a dark side to being the best. And I think, you know, most high achievers will tell you that it's lonely.
0: Um, you have to sacrifice a lot in order to get there. And, um, you probably had to sacrifice like dances and school and partying like in high school. Oh yeah. Uh, I I didn't say you're a perfectionist, right?
1: Yeah. And I had a great group of friends in high school, all athletes. And so, you know, I was a goody two shoes. I didn't drink. I didn't do anything. Um, But I, of course, like I went to prom with like wet hair, you know, and just like (laughs) you show up at thing, you know, and and luckily I got to show up at a lot of things and do a lot, but it was still, um, yeah, I mean, swimming was my number one priority.
0: Well I love that you you can think of the good things about swimming and have those memories because those memories are really incredibly special but I will take a turn onto the I hate to say the dark side but part of what my podcast is about is about talking about trauma and you came on today to talk about your own life and your own trauma and your own past with sex abuse and abuse and survival. And so I wanted to kind of touch on and have you tell this story of like, you have these amazing accomplishments and you you were a perfectionist and a young swimmer. And it sounds like your mom and your dad and your family were amazing. But Mm. just because you had that doesn't mean that like these dark clouds and dark people can't come into our lives, correct? Definitely. So why don't you tell me a little bit about your coach and, and the story of how that happened and the training and how you were kind of groomed if you're okay talking about that.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, if you had told me a year ago that I would be able to talk about swimming and my accomplishments with a smile on my face, I would have probably told you that you were a liar
0: because I remember talking to you. I'm really (laughs) genuinely proud of you. And it's it's amazing. It's amazing to see. I've come
1: along. Long way, and it's you know trauma has been an interesting part of my journey. So what's crazy is the stories of Olympic glory and you know all this it all happened alongside being sexually abused by my swim coach. And he started coaching me when I was 13 years old. Um, he began sexually abusing me at 15, and I wasn't able to get away from him until I was 24 years old, well into my adult life. And you know, it started out, the grooming process, um, you know, is something that I'm grateful that it's become more everyday conversation. But for me, I was the teacher's pet. You know, ever since I was 13, he was involved in my life, in my family's life, my sister's life. You know, he just, the grooming process is they want to make sure that you rely on them for everything. And so, you know, he preyed on these huge goals that I had for myself to be an Olympian and you know, kind of turned that against me, my desire to be a perfectionist, my desire to be a people pleaser. He took all of those things and used them to completely control and manipulate me. So, um, you know, it, it started when I was young, when I was far too young to know what was going on. Um, it started on pool decks, in cars, in parking lots, in parks, in Seattle, all of my initial sexual experiences were at the hands of my coach who was almost 20 years older than me. Um, And at the time, I just thought that it was my life. I thought that he was in love with me. Um, I thought that I was in love with him. Uh, It was all that I knew. And so I had this huge burden of a secret because my mom, you know, people ask like, they're like, where are your parents? I'm like, my mom was, there. My mom was, you know, on the board of our swim team. She was very involved in our lives. My older sister was there for, um, the very beginning
0: of it before she went off to college. And then my younger sister was there and any of them know or suspect, I mean, your sister's nothing.
1: My sisters never suspected other people around did. It was very apparent that I was the favorite, that I was the pet. And, um, you know, I think that there was jealousy involved because I was that. I think that there was confusion because this was, you know, in the early 2000s when this really wasn't talked about at all, um, well before the Me Too movement, well before, you know, Larry Nasser and the gymnastics cases. Um, and I just don't think that people really knew what to do about it. Um, My coach was very charismatic and he really had everyone fooled. Um, We all loved and adored him. And I don't think that even though all the warning signs were there, I don't think anyone really wanted to believe that he would actually do something like that. Um, But my family, no, like he, my mom adored him um, as did my whole family. We trusted him and under their nose, he was abusing me and forcing me to keep it a secret. And, and he used that as in like, we're in love and everyone will understand someday, but they're not going to understand now. And that's why
0: it's probably really confusing as a teenager, because you're going through, I mean, I remember being a kid and I had a giant crush on like one of my teachers. And if he paid attention to me, you know, I would be like thrilled. And you have all this confusion about like what sexuality is, right? And what's yeah. normal and what's not and the these men that go after young girls or young boys, it sounds to me like he was not only grooming you but he was also grooming your family and your parents,
1: definitely. And what I found out later in the last few years is that there were many others that he was doing alongside this. With me he owned me for those 10 years like I didn't breathe without checking with him first. And, you know, I was, he'd like gotten so deep into my psyche, so deep into like every thread of my being. I didn't know how to exist without him. And that was such a confusing part of my recovery as well. When I stopped communicating with him, because not only was he, you know my abuser he was my lover my coach my friend my mentor my father figure um you know there were so many roles and um like hats that he wore for me that i didn't know who i was without him and that was a massive identity crisis for me because on the outside i looked so put together and i had to because i had to have all of my ducks in a row so that people wouldn't see past my perfect facade and my perfect mask that told the world that I was okay, that I was a straight A student. on the path to the Olympics. I was doing all of these things. I was a, you know, a friend, a sister, a daughter, all of like, I had to make sure that my life was in perfect order so that in case anyone looked like right below it, they wouldn't see that I was a complete and utter mess from holding all of this in one piece.
0: Yeah, and, That's then, secret. and his secret. I mean, it's it's like the worst secret to have to keep, and I can't imagine what it was like. So, as the relationship evolved, and he was your everything to you, and he was manipulating you, how like how did it turn into a relationship? that was accepted? Like, oh, one day you just started dating and everyone was like, oh, it's what, this just happened and you're like 18 and it just happened today and everyone accepted it?
1: Yeah, no. Well, I mean, throughout my whole career, um, I retired when I was, I think, 23. It was secret the entire time. The only people who ever knew that we were officially together was my family, which I'll get to that in a little bit. So basically this was secret the whole time. Like I turned 18 and it wasn't like, we were like, we're public, we're together. I still stand for him. You know, he was my coach.
0: Um,
1: and so he actually stopped coaching, um, in 2010, 2011, because there was a lot of rumors and an investigation that took place about an inappropriate relationship with an adult athlete. And so that was part of, um, I was obviously an adult at that time. Um, and so that was very public. It was in the Washington Post. And so he stopped coaching and he told me that it was his choice. He didn't want to coach anymore. Um, and that, you know, I was selfish to continue swimming, even though I had about a year and a half until the Olympics. And at that point, the relationship, it was, already, it was very sexually abusive. Like sex was never for me. Like he told me and taught me what I was supposed to like to make him happy. I had no idea that sex was, I don't know if you can talk about sex on your podcast, but, <laughs> sure. yeah. but like it was traumatic. Um, but I didn't know any different. That was all that I knew about sex was what he taught me.
0: Um, no, it, wasn't, it wasn't like the relationship with sex was more of like an act for you and mm-hmm. like a something you had to do for him to make him happy But for you, your relationship with sex was not a healthy one where it was like something that was special and no. No,
1: not at all. And, you know, he wanted to talk about sex constantly. He wanted to have sex constantly. And for me, it was just a chore that I had to get through. And even at that time, like I I didn't see it as abuse. Like I thought this man loved me, but I was just like, this is just sex and it's terrible. And, you know, he's telling me what I like, even though... I don't, this doesn't feel good. I don't, you know, enjoy this, but he was saying, you really lo- you really like this. And I think that's part of the psyche too, where it's like, oh my gosh, do I like this? Like it's this very confusing and it just adds to the complete manipulation. Um, and obviously these layers are layers that I've peeled back through a lot of very intense therapy. But um, yeah, I mean, he was so deep in my psyche. Um, so when I retired from swimming, We lived together in Seattle, but I didn't have a key to the apartment, even though I was paying the rent most of the time and he uh, was still involved in swimming in some way. And so our relationship quote unquote was still a secret. Um, At that point I had told my mom and my sisters who were not very accepting of it. I told them it started after I turned 18, that we loved each other, blah, blah, blah. Um, But it was still a secret. And He was very verbally abusive to me at that point. He wasn't when I was young, especially when he was coaching me, he was very complimentary of me. Um, you know, built me up. Um, you know, we, he was very jealous so that, you know, when we were on national team trips, whenever I would get attention from other men, um, other guys, he would just crucify me. Like he was, he did not like any attention that I received, Um, And before the Olympics, I'd done this photo shoot and was kind of labeled as like a model, you know, like swimmer. Um, Mm -hmm. And he was furious that there were attractive photos of me, that people might be looking at me. Um, And so my Olympic experience was pretty horrific. Like he was, because he wasn't there and he told me that I was being selfish um, for wanting to be there without him.
0: What's interesting about this is like, in life, you know there's people and it's I've found i've I've known this, but I've always tried to see the best in people and not believed that there's bad really just bad people out there that are manipulative and you know like I had a stepfather that was abusive he was mentally abusive he wasn't sexually or physically abusive towards me but and the relationship was different but some of the things you're talking about are things that I can relate to, and you know what's heartbreaking about it is he robbed you of your childhood, yeah, you know I mean, I have a daughter that's ten years old and she's starting to go through almost she's almost eleven all the things like beginnings of puberty and the confusion and the time that's supposed to be special and you know, 13 years old, you just want to be accepted and you want to be perfect. Which looked perfect
1: on the outside was the worst possible situation anyone could imagine. And I'm proud of myself for how how far I've come, but I have had some dark moments over the last few years, like darker than I could have possibly imagined. Pain that I would do anything to try to escape. I wanted to crawl out of my skin. I wanted to leave my body. I wanted, I would do anything to get out of that pain. And that's where I left him uh, when I was 24 years old because he was very verbally abusive because our relationship was not public. Um, And there was, it's not like I woke up that day and was like, you know what? You started abusing me as a kid. I'm gonna leave you now. It was more of, I'm in a relationship where I'm treated like crap my family hates you. And I don't really like see where we're going to go. And so I left him um, with the, as in I'm going on a break, let's take a break from each other. And let's start this relationship as adults, because I still couldn't imagine my life without him. I just knew that it needed a new beginning, if that makes
0: sense. How did you get to the point then to say, I mean, it sounded like you were starting to go, wait a minute, this isn't normal how did you get to that point? Was it like, did you kind of have like a breaking point where you said, I need to get out of this. Like, you can't talk to me like this. I'm better than this. Was there some like a specific thing that happened to you there that was, made you do that?
1: Yeah. So my little sister was staying with us on and off, um, when we were living in Seattle and there was this one time we were at lunch and he just started yelling at me. I can't even remember what it was about, but he was yelling at me in public. And my little sister was sitting at the table with us and she got up and she looked at me and she was like, this isn't normal. And she left. And that was kind of one of those moments for me where I, I'm so grateful for her for having the courage to say like, this isn't healthy. And she didn't know that it started when I was underage, but you know, I I had her, my older sister was very disapproving of the relationship and it just, it was just a secret. I was tired. I, I was exhausted from living under a web of lies. Like my whole life was a secret, like nothing about it made any kind of sense. And I always was like watching exactly what I said and making sure that we didn't get caught. And it was just, it just had gone on for so long that it was suffocating me. And it lasted a few months of like, just Continued to pile on before um, he was actually traveling for work for a week. And I called my mom and I was like, Come over and move me out. Like, I'm that, done. That exactly when so, you told her? Um, not that I was underage. She had. Um, my husband, my now husband, is actually the very first person I told about the underage abuse. Um, I didn't tell a soul up until that point. And so my mom just thought that we were adults, but that I was just in an unhappy relationship and, you know, that we needed to work it out, but that I needed to do it not under the same roof as him. And so I moved out, um, got my own place with my sister. Um, we kind of continued to like date, and I had started casually dating other people. And you know, I don't think I ever saw my life without him. Um I always thought that I would go back to him because it was all that I knew, but I just wanted to have an experience. Like I didn't know what it was like to date. I didn't know what it was like to like make out with some random person. I didn't know, I didn't have any first night or first date like anything. And so I wanted little pieces of a normal life before I went back to him.
0: Was that a period where you started to like develop a a, a normal um, relationship with sex with your own sexuality. Yes. And was that the time? Did you then go? Wait a minute. Do I need to be in therapy? Or was that later? That therapy was later. Um. So I had dated. Um. Yeah. I was
1: dating casually. Um. A few people. Like one guy for a few months. Another guy for a few months. And it definitely healed my relationship in a lot of ways with my body with sex. I realized that it could be enjoyable, that it was, you know, consensual between two parties. And so for me, that was a great first step on my introduction towards like being a sexually active adult, but I didn't think I needed therapy. I just think at that point I was very much in denial. Um, I wanted to put my past in a box and never look at it again. Um, And I didn't think that I needed therapy at that point. At all. That's what I think is interesting. Is I think a lot of the people around me would have been like, uh, "Sweetheart, you need to go talk to somebody." And in my eyes, I put my mask back on and I was like, "Why do I need to talk to somebody? Like, I'm dating this guy. I'm dating, you know, doing this. Like, I have a great career. At that point, um, I was working with um, a consulting company. I was doing a lot of corporate training. My life looked amazing on the outside. I had a great job. I had, you know, a great group of friends. What seems like a normal dating life and in my eyes, I was like, great. I went from that guy who
0: treated me terribly to like this amazing life. Like, look at me. I'm so lucky. And it sounds to me too. Like you had, like you were pushing it down, pushing it down. Like almost like it was like, it's like a volcano, right? I mean, I, I'm guilty of doing the same thing. I was pushing down my pain, pushing it down, pushing it down. And then I realized when I Finally, like, I mean, I was in and out of therapy as a kid, but never where I connected to a therapist like Dr. Nay, my therapist now, um, where I was like, and she then was like, you have PTSD. And I was like, what, what, what does that even mean? So it's almost like when you finally went to therapy and you realized all of these feelings of like shame and guilt were pushed down, right? For so long that it like erupted.
1: Oh, shame, guilt, memories. I mean, anything. I just like, it just, I shoveled it down as far as it could. And I chose not to look at it and, and it took, I managed to make it a very long time without looking at it. And so I ended up moving down to California. Um, I was still in regular contact with my coach and abuser. Um, I still thought that there was a chance we could get back together, but I needed some more separation. And I, I was just looking for a new life, you know? And so I moved down to LA, moved into Manhattan beach and ended up finding a great rental, um, right off of Manhattan beach. And I love this story,
0: by the way, (laughs) (laughs) if you don't, if you, if my (laughs) listeners don't listen to this story and realize that every single thing in life, I say this all the time on the podcast, it happens for a reason. And like, there's things that God sends us like, wait till you hear this story. So tell the story. Cause I love it.
1: So I moved in and then, uh, there was one guy, the guy who owned the house, um, obviously always lived there. And so after six months, we were looking for a new roommate. And so he ended up finding some guy who ended up moving in, in January, of I believe January of 2015. And his name was Matthew Smith. and uh, we just became friends right away. We were roommates and he's a Southern gentleman. And so he like drew the line of sand and just labeled me roommate. And so like, there was, you know, nothing going on. We would go to the beach together. We'd hang out together. Uh, we'd go to brunch. Um, and everything was just super friendly. Um, never anything romantic. And so I'm like trying to pitch Matt onto all my girlfriends. I'm like, Oh my gosh, you guys, he's you know, super polite, respectful. He owns his own business. He's attractive. Like who wants to date Matt? And so after the, a few months of this, my girlfriends were like, uh, why don't you date Matt? Um, and so that kind of started getting in my head. I didn't realize, but on his side of things, his friends and family were like, what about your roommate, Ariana? You know, like, would you guys ever date? So long story short, um, after about six months, we finally, um, it was 4th of July weekend, and we were hanging out with some friends and um, a little bit too much alcohol, and they were like... So you two are perfect together. Why don't you go home, talk about it, and let us know what you decide. And so we ended up, uh, we didn't talk about it that weekend, but the next week we had our first date and uh, the rest is history. We... And you've been <laughs> together ever since. We've been together and ever now,
0: since. <laughs> and now, I mean, we're, we're, I want to go backwards and talk <laughs> about like meeting him. He's so great too. I, I rem- see you guys at church. <laughs> And you're so cute together. And now you have a baby. We have a baby. And you're a new mommy. <laughs>
1: yep. I have a almost four month old baby. His name's Whitaker Michael Smith. And he's the sweetest little boy. I feel so lucky. And Matt's the best dad. And what's interesting, and this is kind of an important part of the story, because up until that point, I when Matt and I started dating, I hadn't told anyone about the abuse. But the thing with Matt is I'd spent six months getting to know Matt and we were friends. He was one of my closest friends. And I knew that Matt was the man that you marry. Matt wasn't the guy that you lied to, that you hide from. He was the one who showed up when things get hard. And I knew that I had to tell him my secret because at that point, Sean was still in regular contact with me. And I never thought that he wouldn't be. And so two weeks into us dating, I at I think 2 a.m. I think we stayed up from like 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. I told Matt, not everything, but I told him the cliff notes of my abuse, when it started, um, how long it went on for, Sean's involvement in my life. And at that point, I still didn't use the word abuse. I more I just said my relationship with him started here. Now, my husband, and this is one of the best, sexiest things about him, is he is a man of principle. He says that nobody can buy a good night's sleep from him. It's not for sale. He was like, I like that when I lay my head on my pillow, I know that I'm living my life in accordance with the man that I want to be in the values I, that I live my life by. And so as soon as I told Matt what happened to me, he labeled Sean as pedophile. And he didn't say those words out loud to me, but it was always very clear for him what Sean was, and And Matt could see how controlled and manipulated I was. I couldn't still. And so we kind of had an an agreement and it wasn't like Matt was forcing me to, but he was like, you know what? I don't care about any of your ex boyfriends, anyone else that you've seen. But like when Sean gets in contact with you, like if you would just let me know, you know? And so that was kind of, and I felt, you know, that, that I was okay with that. So this went on, Sean was continuing to get in touch with me. Um, and he was so deep in my head. Like, I remember these emails that I would get from him and phone conversations where he would be like, I can't believe you're settling for someone that's average when you're extraordinary. And that's what these abusers do too. They put you on a pedestal so that you're on this pedestal that they helped lift you to. And everyone else around you are just average commoners. And he would say that to me so often, like, eh, you know, like, you know, you, you gave up your fairy tale to, you know, be with Matt Smith. And...
0: So it was so confusing. He was still still manipulating you. Still manipulating me. Trying to reel you you back. Oh yeah. He wanted me back desperately. And and probably at that point, had he, I hate to circle back with this story, but in the very beginning, we talked about the connection to Rick Curl, who is a swim swim coach in the Washington DC area. I'm wondering if the Washington Post story had anything to do with Rick Curl. He actually was accused of molesting swimmers and he's now in jail. Yeah. So was there a connection at all? Like was he did he ever have any kind of legal? I hate to kind of back on how that's connected. Yes. So,
1: and I'll actually, let me get that okay. Cause I'll go a little bit because yes, it, it is all connected and it was a huge part of my healing process. And so Matt and I were engaged and I'll, I'll never forget this day. Um, Sean had, we'd spoken on the phone that morning cause he had wanted, he still was positioning himself in my life as a mentor, like a business mentor, you know, and, and someone that I should go to for advice and we had a phone conversation for 30 minutes and, you know, it felt really good. It was nice to talk to him. It sounded like he was doing well. He had a girlfriend. I was obviously doing well. I was planning a wedding, looking forward to the rest of my life. Um, and so when I hung up the phone, I, I called Matt and I was just like, just so you know, I just had a phone conversation with Sean. It was really good. You know, he's doing great. He wished us well. And at that point, Matt had had enough. Like he could see that like, and Matt wasn't like a jealous fiance in that, like he could not have cared less if this was a normal situation. He could see that I was a child being manipulated by a man much older than me and he was done. So Matt wrote up an email that basically said, I understand that you have violated um, the law, like that you, and Matt is very legally minded. So he like wrote this up and was just like, never contact her again, never contact us again. Like you're done. Like I understand that you know, there were things that took place here, unless you want me to look into them, like disappear. And so Matt gets home from work that night. And I'm just like going on with my day. I didn't realize that they had communicated anything like that. Matt walks in my room and cause we were still roommates living in, we had two rooms. It was hilarious. <laughs> like a month later, we ended up moving into our own house, but like we lived in the same house. It was the best. Um. So Matt walks in and he was like standing in the doorway and I'll never forget and he looks at me and he's like Sean will never contact you again. And I turned to look at him and I I I'll always remember and I was like what did you do? And he was like I sent him an email. I told him to never contact you again, to leave us alone. And I fell to the floor and I started sobbing and I was rocking back and forth and I said Sean's going to kill me. Sean's going to kill me. Sean's going to kill me. And I stayed in that position for about an hour. And Matt said that he had never seen anything like that. Like the visceral response that happened in my body. And, and I want to preface this. Sean had never in the past told me that he was going to kill me. He never hit me. Our relationship wasn't abusive in that way. But he was so deep inside of me. And I, I never imagined life without him. And I also had never had someone stand up to Sean and, and save me. And what I didn't realize, obviously, now I realize how desperately I needed someone to save me, and that Matt was the one who finally came in and said, "Like enough is enough." And from that point on, I've never had communication with Sean again. Um, you
0: know what's you know what's so cool about this is, and I'm sorry if I'm crying, <laughs> but it's um, it's amazing because I believe like he's your person. He is like he's like your superhero that came in yeah. He's such a good guy and he, and you needed that. Like, I needed it. You eventually would have gotten there because you're a strong, smart girl, but you have somebody and that's all you needed the whole time, you yeah. know? And it wasn't, it's not your parents' fault. It's not your sister's fault. This yeah. was a secret that you were probably terrified and blamed yourself, you know?
1: Oh, I blamed myself the whole
0: time. Yeah and I need and you're
1: exactly right, I needed matt i needed um I needed someone to protect me and to save me and and he was that person and it's been an interesting road for our relationship, especially as I was in therapy um I'll kind of fast forward a little bit, but just to kind of talk about like the roles like in a husband and wife there was a point during my so i obviously i'll i'll talk more about this but i ended up filing a lawsuit i went to the police and like this thing blew up um, and matt has been my rock throughout the entire thing i mean he has been so many roles and you know when i lo- not only is me my husband my lover my lawyer in some ways my accountant he's my confidant my therapist my eating disorder you know uh, check in person like he is He had so many hats. And at one point I could see that it was killing him. And at that point was when I pulled on a few important people in my life, um, to help me every single day with check-ins because I was in a really dark place in my mental health and it was just too much for Matt. And so Matt was, I mean, Matt's the best human being I've ever met in my life. Like he just is such a good and honest man. And he, is the ultimate partner he taught me what being an actual partner in life is supposed to look like and and i'm so proud of the life that we're building together because it's the best
0: (laughs) i mean you deserve it and then the other thing i love about hearing about your husband is he i know he's really spiritual yeah then spirit did do you feel like spirituality like helped you along with therapy, along with Matt and getting through these like horribly dark things that you've had to go through in your life?
1: Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I would say I, I believe in God and Catholic and that's a huge part of my faith. One thing that I actually did when, um, I, I needed to ask someone else's help. We're really close with a deacon at our church. His name's Deacon Fred. And he's- I
0: love Deacon Fred. Everyone <laughs> loves Deacon Fred. He's
1: the best. He married Matt and I, he's our son's godfather. Um, he's my adopted godfather. Our kids will call him pop. And um, so he was somebody, he obviously knew um, in the last few years, everything that I've been going through and every single morning for about a year and a half, he sent me a Bible verse. And he was one of the people that I just needed help connecting, um, the dots. I needed help finding who I was. One thing that my mom did for me for a year and a half as well is every morning, she sent me a childhood memory because I told her, I was like, I don't know who I am. Like Sean has reprogrammed me into this narcissistic sex driven money, hungry person. Like, I don't know who Ariana is like, and so she helped me piece together my childhood and these memories and things that I wanted to hold on to. And that was important. But I and I mean I would like to say that when Matt cut off communication between Sean and I, I had an awakening and I went to therapy and everything began and and whatever else. But it actually took another year for all of that to happen. Um, so I was planning a wedding. Matt and I were gonna get married, and we ended up getting married on August 12th, in 2017, and I fell to pieces on our honeymoon Mm -hmm. in Bora Bora. (laughs) We were staying at this beautiful place. And, And this is why I highlight that because my life was so dark. Like my insides were so dark at that time. And on the outside, it looked so beautiful and light. I had just had the most beautiful wedding you could possibly imagine. I felt so blessed. We were surrounded by family and friends and, and I married the man of my dreams and inside I began to crumble. And it was like, we talked about at the beginning, like everything had been pushed down, pushed down, pushed down. And after the wedding, I took a breath on the honeymoon and I exploded like into a million pieces. Like, and that's when everything began. Like everything came up so intensely for me in a way that I was not prepared for.
0: Um, and How did things come up so intensely? How did you deal with, because probably part of it was like, our our lives are supposed to be perfect, right? Especially like you being a perfectionist, you, uh, you like had to be this perfect girl that went to the Olympics and got straight A's and looked perfect. And, you know, and then was the perfect, like, you know, swimmer and you had a great job. And then you met the man of your dreams and everything's perfect on the outside. But how did you finally, when everything exploded and came to the surface, you touched on the eating disorder? Yeah. Like, is that how you dealt with it? Is that how, like what happened?
1: Yeah. So I had all these memories coming up was the biggest thing. Like, I just felt like, you know, I hate to use the word enlightened because it sounds cliche, but I all of a sudden had all of these things that made sense to me. And looking back on what Sean had done to me, I didn't have my rose colored glasses on anymore. Like it was very apparent that I was abused and manipulated and controlled. And for me, I didn't know how to handle these kind of feelings. And what ended up transpiring was it, it turned into bulimia, a very intense form of bulimia. Um, now when Sean started abusing me, I began binge eating and that was pretty common for me to demolish as much food as I could. And I swam four, six hours a day. And so it never looked like anything on on my body and appearances. Um, but that's how I, you know, going back to the, the shoveling down, like that's what I did is I shoveled down my emotions. Um, when everything started bubbling up to the surface, What's so crazy, I've I've learned a lot about eating disorders through through my therapy, and obviously I can only speak to my own experience. The way that I would describe the bulimia in my body and in my trauma is I would shovel down the memories and shovel down the food to numb myself because thinking of everything was way too painful. Like I just, like the intensity of the feelings that were coming up were so painful that I needed to numb it. And then- the violence of the bulimia helped me to cope and to feel something different. And so it was a distraction in a lot of ways. And when I say like intense bulimia, I mean like, and it, it started a little bit slow. Like it started, it started on my honeymoon, which is, I'll never forget throwing up in the toilet and just like looking at it and just saying like, Oh my gosh, I feel so much better. Like the, I, I feel a different kind of hurt. I feel a different kind of pain, than these memories. And my bulimia was really intense. Like it built into something that was very scary. And um so basically, so our honeymoon was in August. I came home and I went right back to work. Like I think we landed from our honeymoon at like 2 p.m. I was on a 6 p.m flight like back to work that night. And so my eating disorder just started spiraling um because I had all these memories coming up and I wasn't t- home and he sat on the end of the bed, and I started sobbing. And I looked at him, and I said, "I think I'm depressed." And he said, "I think you are too. Let's get you some help." And uh, when I mean, was that? What? How many years ago was that? Uh, that was 2017. Um, so just three years ago. Okay, not that long ago. No, not that long. And so, so I found a therapist and started immediately. Um, I was doing one to two a week sessions and just diving into everything and I'm so grateful for the ability to go see a therapist I know that that is such a privilege and and one that I took very seriously but for the first time because I mean I'd made excuses forever like oh I love Sean too you know I was uh, you know as much a part of the relationship and in therapy I was able to unpack like the many many layers of abuse and what actually was happening and going on with me and I hit rock I have I've had many rock bottoms over um, the course of the last three years, but I hit a really intense one. Um, we moved to Austin, Texas, which I don't even know if you knew this. I didn't know that. For three months. So we didn't really tell very no. many people. And it was actually at the very end of 2017, very beginning of 2018. So I had quit my job. I had a great job. Um, and my husband could see that I was unraveling. I very much didn't leave the house, even though I used to be at Soul Cycle every day. I was at yoga all the time. Like I, started to lock myself in the house um, with my darkness. And my husband was like, you know what? Let's just shake things up. Let's move to Texas. Um, You know, we'll live downtown in Austin. It'll be super fun. It'll be a new experience. And so it was one weekend to Austin. We were living on the 19th floor of an apartment building right in the heart of Austin. My husband had left for work that day. And I was staring out the window, wondering how quickly I would hit the ground. And that was... One of many wake-ups for me, Um, I started sobbing. I called my husband and I said, I'm not okay. I'm thinking about jumping outside our balcony window. Like I'm going to come to the office. And so I ended up um, going and laying on his office couch all day, just crying on and off. And I realized that I needed more information about my abuser. And this started a path that led me to go to the police Um, I realized that I was not the only one. I was the one that he controlled, but he had many others. Like it was a, a reoccurring theme for him. And I just started peeling back a lot of lies. Um, and at that point I realized that I needed to go public with my story for many reasons. Um, I started to write and I ended up publishing, um, a multi-page essay that I penned my story because starting when I was 15 years old, like the whispers behind closed doors were Ari sleeping with her coach for extra attention. And I was tired of that narrative being my life. And even right now, like, as I say that, I feel rage, that that was my story. Like that, that was how I felt my swimming career was defined was that I was sleeping with my swim coach.
0: Like you did, like you did something wrong. I did something wrong. I wanted that attention. Nothing wrong. You did nothing wrong. And that's a universal theme with people that have been. Yes. Yeah. And so
1: for me, it was important. First and foremost, I wanted to take my voice back and I wanted to rewrite the narrative of what that time was. And I needed people to hear my side of the story because I don't feel like anyone ever had. And so I ended up writing that and publishing it. Um, I ended up going on all of the New York you know, news shows very loudly. And keep in mind, I was still really new. This was in I'd started therapy in October. I went public in February. Like I was still unraveling what had actually happened to me. And so, so I needed to go public because of myself, but also I felt like he was still abusing young girls. And I just felt so strongly about getting this message out because I knew that there were so many people still in danger at his hands and at the hands of so many others, because this runs rampant in youth sports. And I, I just felt this like deep responsibility to just share whether it was a parent. And I received the nicest, most incredible thousands of messages from parents that are like, you, I I'm looking at things differently now. And that's all that I wanted was, you know, the, the thing that I kept saying was like, if you see something, say something, because people saw something, they just didn't know how to say it. And now we're in a different time where it's a little bit more acceptable to talk about, you know, I think that had that been going on now, we might ask questions, but it still is very scary to see how smart these manipulators and abusers can be and just how far they're willing to go to control their victims. So I went very public. I went to the police. For me, the statute of limitations was a real problem for my case. And the statute of limitations really needs to be adjusted in every state, because even though I was, I think 28, when I first went to the police, like that's pretty early for abuse victims, but it was far too late for me as far as the statute of limitations went, but his name has been put out there. And so he's been banned for life with swimming. Um, so he could never coach again. He was, uh, he still owned a swim team and like, I, I have no idea what was going on there, but, um, it was important for me that he not be allowed to coach again. And and I'm glad that I was able to achieve that. But after that, I I went quiet for a while because I realized that I would be absolutely no help to anyone else if I wasn't okay myself. And at that point, my bulimia was 24 seven. It was every day. It was I had so many memories coming up. I had nightmares almost every night. I only slept a couple hours a night. I was a walking zombie. I was... I was in so deep into my trauma and I'm grateful that I had an amazing husband and a great family and support system who were helping keep me afloat um while I was diving into these really intense therapy sessions but it was ugly like it was and I I was not okay.
0: So how did you get to the place where you are like, I mean, obviously we're all still working. Like I'm doing this okay. podcast. I'm still in the middle of my trauma. I'm in therapy every week still, or every other week, you know, um, have, did you ever get to a point where you were like, do I need to go on medication? Yes. Need- so that's
1: a great question. So that's actually how I started to get my bulimia under control. So okay. this was the end of April. So we had lived in Austin, Texas for three months. We lived there from, uh, January through March And I'm actually grateful for it because not a lot of people knew and it was a place where nobody knew me. And so I could be there. I mean, I didn't leave our apartment much, but like it allowed me kind of some peace to like really not be okay. And that was, I would say probably the ugliest parts of my trauma was while I was in Austin. So we ended up moving back to Manhattan beach. um, And I was still... Just in such a dark place. I was unraveling all of this. I was now talking regularly to lawyers and police officers. The FBI was involved in my case, the Department of Homeland Security. Like it was a daily onslaught of, you know, everything on top of managing myself. And so it was the end of April and I had been having so many bulimia, uh, bulimic episodes, my husband was really starting to get scared for my health. And, um, I was grateful that I had told him of my bulimia from the beginning because it kind of helped keep me in check. But so at the end of April, I, I'll never forget we were in Palm Springs for the weekend and I had just thrown up all night long and he sat on the floor with me and I was like crying and shaking and rocking back and forth. And he was on the floor crying and he was just like, I don't know how to help you. I think that we need to, I think you need to go somewhere. I think we need to get you on medication. And for me, that was kind of the wake up because I wasn't ready to leave my life. And so I said, okay, I don't want that yet. Let's put that on the back burner. I'm going to make a lot of changes. And so I ended up doing a lot of research into diets um, that help mental health. And I went on a very strict eating protocol and it lasted about eight months and i didn't even have a piece of fruit for 8 months like i consumed no sugar in my body i lost a scary amount of weight like i was even so fit.
0: yeah yeah
1: and that's what's interesting you know a lot of times eating disorders especially bulimia you can't really tell what's going on because on the outside you look pretty normal mm-hmm. um but for me after was i think what scared people so much when i went on this diet because all of a sudden i was like skin and bones but i was the healthiest I'd ever been. Like I started to really make a change with my mental health because my brain wasn't full of garbage all the time. And I wasn't in a fog from such intense bulimia. And I always say like, I hit so many rock bottoms. I already said that, but like rock bottom was the foundation that I decided I wanted to build a new life on top of. And that brick by brick is how I've built my life today. And there have been plenty of times that an earthquake has come and, you know, slid me back to the bottom. But I just started being really honest with myself. And being able to get my eating disorder under control was really helpful. They're still there, like I still have triggers, but I would say my pregnancy, which I was pregnant for the entire last year and now I'm breastfeeding. Um, my pregnancy helped heal my relationship with my body because my cravings were like grilled cheese and mac and cheese, all like prime bulimia foods. And while I was pregnant, I couldn't throw up. I didn't want to hurt my baby. And so I had to, I mean, the last year being pregnant was another like miracle in recovery. And so it's just, I mean, it's been day by day and I'll never be healed. I'll always, you know, I'll wake up every once in a while with a nightmare and turn over to my husband and just say like, wow, I haven't thought about that in a long time. And, you know, I'll have weird memories that pop up, but I think for me, I'm, I'm so grateful that I was allowed the time and space to heal. I'm proud of myself for not shying away from the really hard work that I had to do because it was hard and it was ugly and it would have been much easier to just hide from it. But I knew that I wanted I knew that I couldn't be the wife and mother that I wanted to be without
0: facing these demons. And that was kind of, it's kind of like going, you know, full circle into where you are now having this amazing baby. You know, it's like you say, you're always going to be have these memories and these things just going through that kind of trauma yeah. you know and people that have gone through trauma in their life whether it be abuse survivors like you or and really any kind of loss trauma it's it's a part of you but yeah. you can make it instead of a negative part of you you can do the things that you're doing like standing mm-hmm. up standing up for young swimmers and young athletes and trying to get laws changed you know so predators can't get away with, you know, never having to face the consequences of what they've done. And, you know, like, I believe that you're an amazing girl. There's something really special about you. I knew it the minute I met you. And I think this, the fact that we had the, like, you know, the story of the Rick Curl and like that just automatically came up, you know, everything happens for a reason. And, thank you so much for sharing your story. You know, you're going to help so many people that have gone through abuse and are trying to work through it and come out the other side. And like you said, it's never over. Yeah. But you're working through it.
1: And I, and I think too, I I had a friend um, who was close to me, give me some amazing advice um, when I was kind of in the thick of it, because I just remember saying all the time that I'm in so much pain. Like I'm just, every part of my body is in so much pain. And she said to me, she was like, respect the pain, the way that you would the last 50 of a 200 AM, which is my race. And it was kind of that like realization, the way I related to other people is like, respect this pain that is all consuming you in the way that you would Something that's good, you know, like the pain of childbirth or, you know, like something like that, where it's like I had to sit in my pain and get really quiet and realize that it was there to teach me something powerful. And when I was able to sit there in the darkness, in the ugliness that was this trauma that was all around me that I couldn't close my eyes, that I couldn't bury my face in a toilet enough to get away from, when I just had to sit in it and I couldn't distract myself with other things that's when it taught me the most. And that's when I healed the most because I was able to breathe into it and, and accept that this is my life. And a year ago, I was still angry. I was angry at a robbed swimming career, a robbed childhood. I was pissed. I wanted it back. I wanted to like crawl back into those memories and have a do-over. And now I sit in my life and I'm so proud of the career that I've had. I'm so proud of this beautiful life that my husband and I are building because sometimes it is hard and I'm sleep deprived and, and I wouldn't trade it for anything because it's our choice. It's my choice. I have a beautiful, healthy baby boy who teaches me every single day to be patient and just to like, see the wonder around me. I mean, he's, like I said, almost four months and like starting to just really engage and interact and and I see the purity in him and I can't wait to, to be his lifelong student. And, and, um, and I'm so excited for the future. And I, and I never thought I would get to the point where I could say that with as
0: big a smile on my face that's on right now. Um, you're good. You're glowing. <laughs> I can see you everyone. Well, I thank you so much. I'm so proud of you. I think you're an incredible girl. Thank you, Megan. Keep, right back at you doing what you're doing because you're helping others and helping others is gonna help you get through your pain just like I'm trying to do this podcast because I want to help other people it's helping me with my pain and your story is like you know my own little therapy session I love so that. in closing keep living keep praying and keep growing thank you thanks Megan